why was I so unhappy? And then the, I suddenly had this simple idea. Well, what if I were to try and articulate the type of life I wanted to live? Maybe mm. that would help. The MindRamp mission is to help people live a long and happy life. My personal mission is to live a long and happy life. I'm 74. I don't know how much longer I will live, but I'm healthy. And my goal is to live to be at least 90, maybe even 100. But the number of years is less important than the quality of my remaining years. I want my old age to be a happy time. I want my remaining years to be filled with meaning, purpose, growth, and fulfillment. I invented the term qualongevity to capture the idea of longevity plus quality of life. I'm happy to live as long as I can, as long as those extra years are quality years, as long as I'm living a good life. Now, the best way to predict the future is to invent it. So the best way for me to ensure that I have a good life is to design the kind of life I want to live. Well, how can I do that? How do we design the kind of old age that we want to live? So I was very excited to make a new friend in Chris Palmer because he's my age. He's asking the same kinds of questions and more to the point, he has developed a number of systems for designing his own good life. To our great good fortune, Chris is extremely generous and is more than willing to share what he has learned. So when I interviewed Chris for the MindRamp podcast, I had two basic questions for him. What is a good life and what is a good death? How does one craft a good life is a very good question, Michael. Uh, the way I think about it is uh, with the three legs of a stool, the first leg being having a vision uh, for your life. I'm not a religious person, but the Bible says uh, without a vision, the people perish. And I think that's true. Hmm. Um, so vision, the second leg is having goals rooted in that vision. And the third leg of the stool is taking action on those goals. And all three are needed. Uh, you know, if one of them's missing, if you don't have a vision, if you're very busy, but don't have a vision, that's a problem. Um, mm. And if you have vision, uh, but don't take any action, that's a problem, obviously. So you need all three working together. How to craft a good life is, I think that's one place to start is there. And preparing for a good death. You know, paradoxically, I think my answer to that is, is that people die the way they live. And so the way mm. to have a good death is to have a good life, to live well. And, um, and I think by living well, I mean living uh, generously, unselfishly, living according to good values. If you live well, then you live with few regrets, you go. You don't go mm. around uh, estranged from your sister, things like that. You you don't regret be cruel or mean to your kids, and 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 then deeply regret that. I mean, when you get to your deathbed, you want to have um, as few regrets as possible. And the way to do this is to live well. So, if you want a good death, then one place to start is having a good life. I like that. The secret to having a good death is to live well, without regrets. We'll focus on the question of planning for a good death in a second podcast and focus now on how to craft a good life. 
To reiterate, Chris suggests that a good starting place is to consider that crafting a good life involves three key activities. First, having a clear vision of what we want our life to be. Two, converting that vision into concrete goals. And three, putting the goals into action. Not just thinking about our goals, but actually creating systems and action plans that will, step by step, get you closer to your goals and to the realization of your vision. So having a vision is a great starting place. It's a logical starting place, and I understand that. But what if I don't have a clear vision of what I want? What if the vision is cloudy? Chris struck me as a guy who has always known exactly what he wanted to do. He has an impressive resume. He has degrees from London and Harvard. He was an officer in the British Navy, an engineer, a business consultant, an energy analyst, an environmental activist. He was chief energy advisor for a senior U.S. senator and a a political appointee in the Environmental Protection Agency under President Carter. So I asked him if he has always had a clear vision of what he wanted his life to be. No, you know, I was I was completely visionless. And it was a problem. It was a big problem. And in my 20s, Michael, I was very unhappy. Hmm. I mean, on the surface, I looked successful. I had I was in the Royal Navy doing well. I had degrees from London and Harvard, but honestly, I was frenetic. I Hmm. was full of ennui. I was jaded. I was I was adrift. And uh, my no- my life was full of noise. I had no sense of what I was doing. I was very miserable and uh, and unhappy and depressed. And then in my twenties, I was reflecting on this. In those days, we didn't have therapists, or I, I didn't know of any therapists. And we didn't we didn't do that in England. And and I was reflecting on this and wondering what was going wrong. Why was I so unhappy? And then the, I suddenly had this simple idea. Well, what if I were to try and articulate the type of life I wanted to live? Maybe mm. that would help. And it seemed like a, a flash of lightning. And I started jotting down notes about trying to describe what I wanted to do with my life. And I found this very hard and for two or three years got nowhere. But eventually, it gradually started coming together. And this is the beginning of what I called my personal mission statement. Of course, later on, Stephen Covey wrote about it very eloquently in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. But uh, before that, I was developing it. And I found at last, this began to give me a sense of peace. I began to say, okay, so this is what I want to do. Mm. And um, I kept working on it and rewriting and revising it and getting it better and trying to capture what I really wanted to get out of life. And this was very helpful. And that was the beginning of my planning. That was the beginning of having a vision for my life. So no, I wasn't, I didn't, I had to work at it and and produce it out of nothing. And, um, and then I went on to have, a, as you point out, multiple different careers, yeah. Chris very generously shared his current mission statement with me. I was expecting a few paragraphs, maybe, or a page. Chris Palmer's personal mission statement is 27 pages long. It has multiple sections, including an introduction, a summary statement, a listing of his core values, specific goals around key areas of his life, and a listing of new project ideas, and finally an outline of his daily routine. It's like, how is he going to get all this done? Chris apparently reviews his mission statement on a monthly basis and makes sure that it's up to date, so it's a living document that guides his life. 
I like his title and subtitle for the document. He calls it Finishing Strong, Creating a Fulfilling and Meaningful Life as I Face Mortality. After the introduction and summary, Chris has roughly two dozen statements that very specifically articulate how he wants to live his future life. I was struck that the statement started with the phrase, I will. They were not so much saying, this is who I am. They were uh, worded, this is who I will be. Was that intentional? Oh, yes, because I'm failing on everything in that list. <laughs> I, don't, I, I doubt that. Well, one of the things I say to people who see it is don't be overly impressed because, <laughs> you know, I don't have in there, for example, um, I want to breathe clean air because I, you know, I well, take that for granted. So oh, everything in that personal mission statement are things that I am not doing well at. I want to do better at. So it, in many ways, you can view it as a list of my feelings. I tell people not to be overly impressed. No, no, no that would be completely the wrong end of the stick. Um, no, it's it's things I'm working on. So it's 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 I will. It's in the future because I haven't achieved it. But it it is the totality of my life. And so it is long and detailed because everything in there I want to do. There's only one place in that personal mission statement, which is at the very end where I collect things that I'm that are possibilities that I haven't yet committed to. But the, the rest of it before that is things that I'm conscientiously working on. Oh, good. That's a good clarification. Yeah, because I was struck by that. Like, I will work for the greater good. I will set and achieve ambitious goals to be highly active, energetic, and productive. I will nurture new identities. That's an interesting one. Say something about yeah. new identities. Uh, yeah, well, you know, when I was young, I had an identity as a, as a British naval officer. And then as I got older, I, I got new identities as a husband, you know, mm -hmm. um, as a father, as a filmmaker. But they change all the time. And, and, and now I'm 74. I no longer make films. And so my identity now is as a grandfather and as an author and speaker, things like that. So identities change, and um, very important to to think about identity. Who you know, what is your authentic identity? There's a new book out called Cured, uh, which talks about how illness is related to identity. Who's the, the author? The author is Dr. Jeffrey Reidiger, R-E-D-I-G-E-R, the life-changing science of spontaneous healing fascinating book and he and he talks in there about uh, how people uh, become ill you know with cancer or congestive heart or whatever and mm -hmm. then begin to identify with those diseases and he also talks about how being freed of fake identities where you're trying to please other people right. can be very helpful in helping people do better with these diseases. So anyway, back to your question, Michael, identity. Yeah, I think at, at all times in our lives, we want to be thinking about who we want, who, what is our identity? You know, uh, who, who are we really? Not the veneer, not the facade, not the fake person, but who is the real person deep down and who do we want to become and, and how do we want to change our identity, be a stronger, more authentic one? I asked Chris whether the idea of an authentic self is in conflict with the idea of an ever-changing self. No, I think the authentic self can change and, okay. and uh, it's, it's not fixed. But you're right. Authentic sounds like it's a fixed, solid thing. But no, I'm a big fan of mindset, of, of Carol Dweck's books on mindset, and right. having a growth mindset, not a fixed mindset. And I, and I, I think the authentic self can change. 
But at any one time, uh, you one wants to, you know, be as much as one can true to one's own values and and ideals, and not be shaped by conspiracy theorists or any, any you know other people who might be or parents who might have ideas for us which are which are not um, the best ones, maybe. I was thinking as you were talking, there's a core of values maybe around which your yourself revolves and continues to evolve. How do you think you developed those? And then how did you learn to begin to trust yourself more than others? Is that a fair question? That's a very fair question. And, and I think when I grew up, I was very immature as a young mm. person and didn't have any values, didn't know what I stood for. It really didn't know anything and was just governed by what my parents recommended. And I, that's why I went in the Navy. My father's in the Navy. I just mm-hmm. drifted into it. I was I had no idea what life was about. I was very ill-read, um, very ignorant, and just kind of pathetic in many, many ways. Only after suffering through a lot of misery and realizing I wasn't happy that I began to think about values. And, and I had to think still doing it today, you know, thinking what what does matter to me, what values are important. And so I gradually developed them and articulate. And I think the it was important for me, at least, to articulate them, not just have some vague sense, but actually write them down and think about them and think about examples of how they would work and so on. Fundamentally, the having a good life is to be aware of what values are important and then to live a life which is consistent with those values. If you don't, you are asking for trouble. You are asking mm. for something, there's something incongruous if you're living a certain life, but then which are not compatible with with what is important to you. An yeah. obvious example is if you think it's important to have uh, you know, a, a decent environment that people deserve to have clean air working for a tobacco company. I mean, it, you right. know, those sorts of uh, discordant conflicts are not good, not healthy for a person to live with that kind of internal contention. After the Navy, I, I came to America and I, I worked for Booz Allen, which mm. is a very high-level management consulting firm. We had a, a end-of-year party and the CEO got up and said, our goal next year is to get to uh, 20 million in revenue. And I was waiting then for the continuation, you know, in order to what, you know, yeah. and he stopped. He just stopped. He said, that was the goal. <laughs> and I thought, and and I thought, well, that is just nuts, you know, and just yeah. and like you, I resolved then and there to leave that. And, and I, then I went on to careers on the hill and in working with Jimmy Carter and other things. And then oh, 20, 35 years or something in 40 years in nonprofit work for right. the same reasons you said. I should note that Chris is perhaps best known for his work as a wildlife filmmaker. In 1983, he founded National Audubon Society Productions, and in 1994 founded and was CEO of National Wildlife Productions as part of the National Wildlife Federation. On his resume, Chris tells us that he swam with dolphins and whales, came face-to-face with sharks and Kodiak bears, camped with wolf packs, and waded hip-deep through Everglades swamps. Chris has also authored nine books, including Finding Meaning and Success, Living a Fulfilled and Productive Life, and he taught a popular class at American University in Washington, D.C., called Design Your Life for Success. I was curious whether Chris found that designing life as an older person was different from designing your life as a younger person. Well, I, th- I think you apply the same principles. I mean, I think it, it, we're constantly growing. 
and constantly facing new challenges. The difference when we're older is that we don't no longer have to worry too much about careers. And so, right. uh, and of course, that's a big thing when we're, when we're younger. But basically, the, whatever age you're at, even at 90, you know, you still should be growing, challenging yourself, exercising. I saw a photograph of you, Michael, the other day doing, a, doing push-ups. That's great. I mean, I think, <laughs> I, I think it's so important to constantly challenge ourselves uh, physically, emotionally, right. Uh, mentally and spiritually. And, um, and by spiritual, I mean having a purpose and meaning in life. So uh, that is a, that applies all the way through. So people, when they're young, in their, when they're 10, 12, 14, the young teens, very important for them to think about these issues of how to live a good life. And, and when you're 90 and 95, you know, it's very important too. It's, it's a, one never should give up or never should be a placid or complacent is the better word. Never should be complacent. We should always be uh, doing challenging things. You know, I, I think that everybody should take on a, a you know, a, a challenge at all the time. Right now I'm taking on the challenge of learning to juggle. I juggle every day. I learned, I'm learning to play the piano and sing. Um, I do handstands every day. Um, I, uh, I play tennis almost every day. With the handstands, can you actually balance on your hands? Oh, yeah. You oh, absolutely. Oh, oh yes. wow. That's very absolutely. impressive. I can do oh, them yeah. up I, against I, the wall. No, 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 no. No, it's the real handstands. I can hold them for about 30 seconds or a minute. And wow. it's very good exercise for your, for your shoulders and, and a sense of balance. All that blood flows into your brain. Um, and I've been doing it. I started when I was about, uh, when I became a dad, I just take my three daughters to the YMCA. Oh, I yeah. saw this big, big expanse of foam floor and I thought that would be fun. So I tried it, fell over. 20 years, 20 years of constantly trying and failing. <laughs> and after 20 years, I managed to do it. And now I do it every day and I, and I love it. It's a, it's a great exercise. It's one of the many exercises I do every, every day to keep fit. And juggling, is that in response to the research about how juggling uh, is yes. good for the brain? <laughs> Absolutely. And I've always envied d d jugglers and I, I couldn't do it. It took me a year to even begin to do it. And, and I've been working on it now and I did it every day without fail. I practice juggling and I, and I love it. And um, it's, it's entertaining for the grandkids, of course. They, but, it's, but yes, I do it for fun and I do it because I know it's good for me. We had talked about the guys who do Designing Your Life, uh, Burnett and Evans. Wonderful um, book. Is what you do in terms of uh, putting your life together consistent with their ideas? Is it, did you draw from them? Very much. I mean, I, I, my ideas were, 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 were fairly well developed before I read their book. But I read their book with great fascination, great admiration. Yeah, it's a yeah. wonderful book. I highly recommend it to, to, to people. And they they talk about building a life, not just thinking about it. And, and I mm. agree with that totally. They talk about uh, mindsets, the important mindset of having of being curious, you know, right. of having a bias to action, of reframing. They give an example of that on the back cover. They say a dysfunctional belief is if you are successful, you will be happy. They say a much better reframing is true happiness comes from designing a life that works for you. So that reframing is important. And they also talk about radical collaboration, working with other people, getting help with other mm -hmm. people, reaching out to other yeah. people. So those are mindsets that I totally endorse and use actively in my own, own life. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. And I highly recommend it.
I also like their idea of designing prototypes. Like yeah. uh, you're never really going to know what you like until you get out there and do it and build a prototype of your life. And you say, oh, I like this. I don't like that. And am I understanding that idea properly? You would. You are. You understand it completely. Yeah. Building prototypes, what engineers do and designers do. And their book is, is about how you design your life. So they just like you said, they said they recommend Go out and try things, you know, uh, mm-hmm. you know, follow people, shadow people who are doing work you think you might like, see if you like it, have a go. And that, again, is consistent with Carol Dweck's, you know, uh, philosophy of the growth mindset. I can't for the life of me figure out how you fit everything into a day, you know, all of the things that you do. Yeah. Well, um, yes, Michael, one thing I do is I I watch very little television i don't do social media i don't shop i do it over online i do it right. I, I spend i spend very little time on things that don't matter to me and and i plan my day very well i never go to bed without a detailed plan for the next day and i i use my time very efficiently and, and effectively so i'm i'm very productive you know uh, so i do get a lot done and probably get a lot more done than most people do in a typical day because i'm constantly working i work hard i'm i've always been highly diligent diligence is one of the values that i that i'm that i mm. adhere to but i don't i don't do everything i can't you know i mean i don't garden every day for example right, right now it's too cold and it's too cold today to play tennis i can't do that today but over a week i probably do almost everything in that personal mission statement and goals do you actually write a, a week schedule? I do. I plan weekly. I, so I have a vision for my life. From that vision, I produce a goals. And from that goals, I put them in a weekly. Uh, I do use time blocking, schedule my time. Yeah. So I get a lot. I get a lot done compared to some other people, perhaps. This is getting down to very specific techniques, but. Say you block out an hour to do writing right. uh, and you get to the end of the hour and you're kind of in a flow. Would yeah. you give yourself some slack? And- absolutely. Oh, okay. absolutely. Absolutely. And so throughout the day, I might redo my time <laughs> blocking three or four times, regenerate. It's very important to be flexible and to take advantage of serendipity and and uh, and be spontaneous. And if I'm working, I'll shoot right past it. Or if, I, if something is not working, I'll change it. You know, very important to have flexibility and to be forgiving. Sometimes we run out of energy. Sometimes we get exhausted. Sometimes we don't sleep well. So it, it's good to just give yourself some compassion, tender loving care and <laughs> let it go. You know, what's important, Michael, is slow productivity. That's mm. to say productivity. Uh, Professor Cal Newport in Georgetown talks about this. And what matters is productivity over five years, not today. So right. if today doesn't go well, oh, it doesn't matter. Just, just mm. let it go and don't worry about it. But what's important is over five years, you produce a book that is going to be treasured by your grandchildren or people who've read it. So slow productivity is more important than every day. Do this, do this, or I got to do this, got to do that. You know, you know, it's, it's important to be not overly stressed, to be relaxed, to yeah. to take to take things in your stride. And slow productivity is is a good thing. It, what matters is what you do over several years, not what you do today. We use the analogy of a ramp. You know, it follows our philosophy that you're not going to do this overnight. It's taking one step at a time. And it's not these, I mean, if you can get an incremental leap forward, so much the better, but you're just one step at a time going up the ramp. And uh, so I think that's That's consistent with what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. You craft a good life, according to Chris Palmer, by developing a vision, setting goals, 
and putting those goals into action. I also love Chris's practice of developing and using a personal mission statement that articulates your vision, your values, your goals, and your action steps. I imagine that at one point, Chris added the goal of standing on his hands as a goal in his mission statement. And if you were listening carefully, you heard him say it took 20 years to achieve that goal. But he did it. Now that is grit and determination. That is the epitome of slow productivity. If you're interested in learning more about Chris Palmer, I urge you to visit his website, which is www.chrispalmeronline.com. And if you're interested in developing your own longevity mission statement, visit our website at www.mindramp.org and download a free PDF of How to Develop a Longevity Mission Statement. Also, I urge you to check out the second half of my conversation with Chris Palmer, in which we explore his ideas on how to plan for a decent end of life, including the development of an ethical will. All right. Live long and live well. Until next time.